1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: I have you loud and clear. (laughs) Hello, hello, Hello. hello. Hello.
1: welcome. (laughs) Science. And
2: that is to say,
1: physics. Medicine. Nature.
3: Space. Time. Brain. Life. Life. The Universe. Today on The Naked Scientist, we've gathered the brightest and the brainiest to answer your science questions.
1: So if you've ever wondered whether fish fart, now's the time to find out. I'm Chris Smith, she's Katani, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
3: So let's meet our suite of scientists. Today we have with us Matt Middleton. He's an astronomer from Cambridge University. We have Eleanor Drinkwater. She's an animal behaviourist. I assume that doesn't mean she behaves like an animal. She's looking very quiet right now. Give us a roar. (laughs) Uh, Also from Cambridge University. And we have Giles Yeo from the MRC Metabolic Diseases Unit who can take on your questions about diet and nutrition. And of course, there's Chris Smith who knows Everything and me, who knows some stuff about genetics and stuff.
1: You mentioned Giles. Giles, this one is for you. Frank got in touch and he said this Last year, I heard this ridiculous dieting tip of shivering for 10 minutes. Is there any advantage, calorie wise, in eating all meals frozen? So, can you shiver yourself slim?
2: (laughs) I think the answer is going to be it's probably not a good idea to have your meals frozen. Saying that though, Clearly, if you shiver, you are using calories and you're using energy, but you can do that doing any other, it's probably easier to go for a walk. It's easier to do any number of things. I would recommend eating your food warm
3: so my my housemate yesterday morning walked in holding a stick of celery and said I'm detoxing I'm going to do a detox I'm just you know, hardly going to eat anything and by lunchtime she'd cracked and was was eating lunch do a lot of people just start off with all these good God, intentions she uh, uh she just cooked up I think with some like chicken and some vegetables uh, it was quite healthy
1: not ice cream because then you could I think are they not looking for a bit of a get out clause because they could say it's cold so I'm actually having to make a lot of energy to warm this up so therefore you know I don't, it doesn't ice
3: Cream a health food, make our day.
2: <laughs> I am not paid by Hagen Dazs or Ben and Jerry's. Other ice creams are available. I...
1: <laughs> ice cream so not so, a health food. So, so basically,
2: Jarsio. It's a uh, uh, it's a no from you on that one then. It's it's a no from me. No, okay. I I think I think it's like saying that well, it's better to drink water cold. You know, some people says well, it's better to drink water warm because because you're warm. And it's and it's better than look. We are very well temperature controlled all the way through. It's the same thing as having a pH diet. Once again, we're also very well controlled on the pH front. Just eat healthily,
1: eat healthily, and uh, and do exercise. Absolutely.
2: Thanks, Charles.
3: So uh, I guess speaking about an animal that could be food, uh, here's a question for you Eleanor from Josephine. I have two mallard ducks that come to my patio. One comes up to the door wall and keeps tapping on the window. Why is this? What do you reckon?
0: Well it's a really difficult thing to say without seeing the ducks themselves but I'd say it could be down to two things. One if there was a nice reflection of a duck on the other side, ducks don't Ducks can't recognise their own reflection. Um, the only bird known to recognise own reflection is actually magpies, so it could be thinking there's another duck there. Alternatively, if you've ever fed it before, it could be coming back to try and check out, <laughs> check out the scope and try and persuade you to feed it something else. Has, has anyone noticed
3: this with with ducks? Uh, anyone got ducks in their garden? We
2: ducks with crows. Oh. I, was, I, was, because I was asking you, I think, before we came in here, whether it's the same reason as with crows, because we had this crow on the top of our house once just tapping at the window. <laughs> like, we had to put these little spiky things up to stop them from actually from actually coming in. I out. think
1: it's the, I think Eleanor's point about the reflection mm. is the one because our next door neighbor has a window that at certain times of the day reflects the sun. And the birds sit on the windowsill and tap on that round window. And I think if you look, I can see a reflected bird sitting there and I think they probably catch sight of themselves as they go past because birds have got fiercely good vision, haven't they, Eleanor? Yeah. Uh, And and so they're probably trying to attack this predator that's invading their patch.
3: And then there's also the reverse problem, isn't there? Because my my mum has big patio doors and before she put some big stickers of birds on them because she used to get poor little things just flying straight into the glass because they couldn't see it. Is, Is that quite a big problem
0: too? Yeah, birds flying into windows is a really big problem. Um, And in fact, there's some really cool research that's going on in order to... Birds can see in UV, whereas we can't. Um, So there's some really cool research going in to kind of put some stripes across the windows and all sorts of different things to make marks that the birds can see that we can't. Oh, wow. So you could have like a, a scary UV
3: bird that instead of obscuring your vision with a sticker. Yeah, well, that's the idea.
1: I think, the, I think the duck was just quackers. <laughs> well, that's the other alternative. <laughs> now, Matt, you've been very, very quiet, so we're not going to let you off the uh, hook. Dylan got in touch.
4: Hi, I'm a huge fan of your show, and I have a question for you. So if two black holes collide and there is a ripple of time in space, what would happen if you flew through it? And what other situations can change time itself?
1: Now, this happens on Star Trek a lot, so I'm really interested to hear the answer to this. Well, People flying through a... gravitational wave. Well, an anomaly in the space-time continuum. Okay, happens right. a lot. And, and John Luke Picard's hand went all funny in a fruit dish once. <laughs> and I always wondered how one would argue that from a
3: physics point of view. Well, I, I think we've identified the Trekkies in the room here. <laughs> like, what, singular. What singular. <laughs>
4: um, okay, so obviously a very pertinent uh, question, given that LIGO has directly detected gravitational waves. LIGO? LIGO is the... La- oh. <laughs> it's the gravitational wave. Detector. It is, laser interferometer, gravitational wave observatory. Right. And they detect gravitational waves for the first time. And these are formed when black holes merge. They can be formed in other ways too, but that's what's been discovered from LIGO. So these waves, they propagate outwards, and then they're, they're crashing through us all the time. Right now, gravitational waves are, are going through us. We don't feel them. Because the... I, know,
1: I went to the curry house last night and I think I've had one or two gravitational <laughs> waves <laughs> afterwards.
4: Oh, that's beautiful. What a lovely image. Uh, <laughs> the strength of gravitational waves falls away inversely with distance. And because these things are astrophysical in origin, the gravitational waves that cross us are very, very weak. In fact, LIGO had to detect, essentially... The sun moving by the width of a human hair. That's how accurately they had to do their measurements. That's absolutely phenomenal. But what essentially happened, though, uh, is that if you had two particles together and a gravitational wave goes through them, they'd be pulled apart and compressed at the frequency of that wave. Okay, So if we were... It'd be like a tidal force, like when the moon goes around the Earth. So it pulls and pushes, stuff like that. So in terms of time, though... The, uh, the effect is extremely minimal. But does it
1: actually do anything different to your body? Does that mean that literally parts of your body are experiencing
4: time slightly differently at the se- a- as the wave goes through you? Time probably not the time dilation effects are going to be extremely minimal but in a physical way you would you'd feel a tug it'd be like a tidal force so as if you but were a very
1: small one very visually.
4: very small for us if you got very close to the black hole then there'd be a huge tidal force but then your day is about to get much much worse because <laughs> <laughs> i don't know <laughs> if that was on star trek yeah right and, th- and then you are in a seriously different realm of, of time dilation effects
3: in serious trouble. Um, Chris, here's a question for you from our listener Stephen, who's asked, We've heard a lot about the Zika virus in the news, and obviously, particularly with the Olympics starting in Rio and Zika in Brazil, is a big concern. He wants to know, is it a risk to pregnant women? We've heard that it is, but how long does the virus remain active for women who might become pregnant in the future? For example, is this something for a woman to be concerned about if she catches the virus today and is thinking about becoming pregnant? in say five years or does the body get rid of the infection and what about for men who might be carrying
1: it? Yeah, these are all really pertinent questions which we don't actually have gold standard answers to yet but it is a big problem and based on the paper from Andy Tatum's group at Southampton last week in Nature Microbiology they're saying that 93 million people are going to get infected with Zika in the next two years in the Americas and there will be one and a half million women who are currently bearing children in that group of individuals so there's going to be a lot of exposure Is going on. Um, And those are people who catch it when they are pregnant. Now, we know that's a risk because when you have virus in your bloodstream, it can get across the the placenta, which is normally a very good barrier, and stop it getting in. But with this virus, it can cross the placenta and it homes in on the stem cells that make your brain, as well as other tissues, and it damages those stem cells. So that's why it causes harm to a developing baby. The thing people are really worried about is whether or not it can lurk in the body and stay there so that although you've cleared the virus, you could succumb later or your pregnancy could be harmed. The evidence is that if you're female, you catch Zika, your immune system kicks in, it kicks it out, and you clear it after a week or so, and you do not have any virus that's going to cause a subsequent pregnancy, uh, any problems, because it would have to get across the placenta from the blood and there's no virus in the blood. Where the threat comes from is that your partner could, if he catches Zika virus, retain virus in certain body fluids for an extended period of time. We know that there have been sexually transmitted cases of Zika anything up to several weeks after the person stopped having any symptoms or any virus in their bloodstream. So the worry is people could think that they're actually fit and healthy and they've recovered from it, but or they may not even have had any symptoms of Zika in the first place because 80% of people don't even know they had it. And then you transmit it to your partner she catches it and she then gets the virus in her bloodstream and it then goes into the baby. We don't think there's any risk of the virus going from the genital tract directly up into a baby.
3: I think it's probably best just never to have sex again.
1: Well, I'll, I'll leave that one to you, Kat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to be able to grow, they need to be able to communicate with each other. And so the growth factors are really important because that's how the cells communicate
4: to each other.
3: In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're sifting the signal from the noise. How do molecular signals coordinate cells to build tissues, organs, and babies? Plus, big data for big genetics and our gene of the month is going round in circles. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com/genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Katani and Chris Smith. Today we're answering your science questions, so if you'd like to pose one for our next Q&A show, just send them to chris at com.
1: Meanwhile, Kimberly has put pen to paper with this.
0: Is there such thing as inheritance of
3: obesity or the tendency to become overweight? Could a sudden change in lifestyle trigger a change in genetic expression?
1: So, Charles, what do you think?
2: There is definitely inheritance of body weight and body shape. The question, however, uh, appears to assume there's only one inheritance, one inherited uh, possibility, but there isn't. It's not just one gene. It's not just one fat gene. We, we now know of over 100 genes that are actually involved in determining your body size. The second part of the question about the role of the environment, that's a very good one because our genes haven't changed, certainly over the past 30 years, whereas obesity has has skyrocketed. And that is down to the interaction between your genes and the environment, I think the analogy I was used is if two genes, two people are standing side by side, they look exactly the same. Suddenly, an environment comes along, say me, and I give someone a shove, and the other one not a shove that 's it that's the someone will fall over, and someone won 't. And that's because they're interacting with the environment in, in, in a different fashion.
1: In our sort of caveman era, mm. we would have had enormous advantage conferred upon us if we had jeans that made us store energy for a rainy day. Whereas now you have Waitrose, Tesco, Sainsbury's, other supermarkets are available just down the street
2: and you can go in there and buy anything you want. You can do it. It's not only walking in to do it. You can now order anything from oh, your smartphone. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you
1: can have it delivered to your house, exactly. can't you? Exactly.
2: You don't even have to get your bum out the, out, out the door and that's it. <laughs> So so you can physically be too big to get out the door and you still
1: get fed, which which means it becomes maladaptive, doesn't it? That's correct.
3: And one of the really fascinating things, I've just been making a a radio programme looking at how changes really early on in development affect the health, the lifestyle, and even the weight of people much, much further down the line. So there is this important role right at the start of development, maybe even before a woman knows she's pregnant herself, that there could be influences there from the mother. And, you know, maybe if the mother's not got enough food, There's a very famous example of a famine in Holland that were during the Second World War where the babies were exposed to this famine very, very early on in the womb. And they came out, you know, kind of okay, but then later on in life, they were fatter, maybe because they thought, oh, God, we're starving here. We'd better, you know, make the most of
2: everything we've got. So what you're referring to is, is known as the Dutch hunger winter. And the field of studying this is in utero programming. And what, what that studies is when you're actually carrying a baby, is there any programming that happens? And there is. And the reason there is, is because what you want to do as, as a Fetus is to predict what the environment's going to be and get yourself set up the best way that, that you're going to be. You've got genes which don't change, but if you actually change the markers on the gene, it actually changes the way genes are turned on and genes are turned off. And so there is definitely evidence for that. I have to say, though, that the evidence for the obesity side of things and programming is not huge. The evidence for type two diabetes and you know insulin resistance and other metabolic uh, diseases, definitely, definitely so. And more scarily, people are now beginning to say, before you even become pregnant, is that having an unhealthy diet can actually influence your egg and your sperm, not together in the same person, clearly, uh, but <laughs> the egg and your sperm. Be very strange if you did. <laughs> <laughs> in, in terms, but then there are now studies happening of how can a unhealthy diet or lifestyle influence your egg and your sperm
1: there's a question here 48 percent happy uh, at jemima bond 007 has tweeted to us uh, at naked scientists the biggest loser contestants that's this weight loss program contestants suffered issues with metabolic slowdown should i worry if i'm following an eight week vlcd i'm not sure what um, i think that's very probably the, very, very, very low, low calorie, calorie diet. diet so does do you get a, a change in your metabolism in reflection to what you're eating charles
2: well, let me see if I understand the question. I mean, the the biggest influence on your metabolic rate is still going to be your size. So the larger you are... The higher your metabolic rate, oddly enough, and the smaller you are, the lower your metabolic rate. So there's that. However, however, what happens when you lose weight and you lose a lot of weight? Your body, your brain in particular, does not like that. And so what it does is it tries everything it can to stop you from losing weight. And one of the things it does is to slow down ever so slightly your metabolic rate and also increase your food intake to try and make you gain the weight back.
1: But does that persist indefinitely? So if I lost a lot of weight and I changed my lifestyle, would my brain for the next 55 years still be trying to get me back to the state I was in before I lost weight? Or would it slowly adapt and and learn that the new slim me was the way I wanted to be?
2: Well, I'll give you the depressing answer first, the depressing answer in as far as it has been measured. And you can imagine trying to do that in a human being is pretty tough. But over the experiments that have been done over a couple of years, where they've held someone down at a specific weight after having lost, unfortunately, your brain certainly through that time tries to pull you back up to that weight that you once were. There's gonna be a lot
1: of sorry people
2: <laughs> out I'm there, sorry. Now, isn't yeah.
1: there? <laughs> I,
3: I have heard that it's it's really hard to do these kind of studies because people lose weight and, and then they just put it back on again. Very, right. very sad. Uh let's let's move on to a completely different topic. So now Eleanor, here's a very slippery question for you from our listener, Alyssa, who says do reptiles show recognition or bonding to their caregivers? If a snake, for example, had a blonde, five foot four and slender caregiver named Anna, sounds lovely, would the snake show preference unilaterally for humans of a similar profile and build? Or would they specifically identify the preference for Anna? So is it—is it the person? Can snakes recognise
0: humans? Do they care about you certainly
1: recognise them when they eat them on the rubber <laughs> plantations in certain places.
0: Well, the cool thing about this is no one's ever done any studies on this at all. So I called up one of my friends uh, called Dr Miller, who's currently in Honduras taming baby jaguars, as one does. And what his view was, first of all, snakes tend to have a terrible sense of Eyesight, so they wouldn't be able to tell that Anna was blonde and beautiful. However, they do have this amazing sense of taste. Um, so they kind of stick. Uh, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. Um, yum, yum. <laughs> so they, they kind of stick their tongues out and they can taste uh, what different kind of particles are floating around the place. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that they could tell Anna from Jacob or Jason or whoever else is hanging around the place. However, the really interesting thing though is with. A few wonderful exceptions, including iguanas, most reptiles tend to be pretty asocial. They don't tend to... They're not like dogs, like dogs are kind of pack animals and they want to hang out together, whereas snakes don't really care. So the thing is, there's probably no pressure for the snake to form a bond with Anna because there's no real kind of bonding with snakes in the wild.
1: Now, Kat, this one is for you from John. I know that humans generally share 99% of our genes. With 25,000 genes that means we differ by only 250 genes. It seems to me that we cannot possibly differ by the same 250 genes. Thus, my question is, how many genes does a random pair of humans actually share? Um,
3: this is a great question, but it's sort of based on a misunderstanding because this is a phrase that we often hear that, you know, humans, we share 99% or 99.9% of our genes with each other. And actually, if you took two random humans, there would be 4 million differences in the the letters of our DNA, these chemicals called bases. They're like the letters of the alphabet of our DNA. But the key thing is, is the way that John's phrased this question is like if you imagine our genome as a recipe book that makes all the recipes that our cells need, you're imagining that we would have, say, 250 recipes, whole recipes that were different between us that's not the case it's more like there is sort of a 0.1% of 4 million differences in single letters kind of typos scattered through the whole of this recipe book. And obviously, between males and females, people who are genetically male and genetically female, there's a whole chromosome difference. So the, the two women in this studio, myself and Eleanor, we have two X chromosomes, whereas the chaps here, I'm assuming, have an X and a Y chromosome. I haven't karyotyped everyone, I don't know for sure, but that's my assumption. So basically, it's not that we have whole genes that are different, there's this kind of smattering of variations through the whole thing. However, some some people do have uh, changes, mutations, variations that do mean that whole genes or even whole chunks of DNA are missing or even whole bonus chunks. In Down syndrome, you've got a whole extra copy of one of the chromosomes. So there are a lot, lots of variations between us, but it's not like saying this whole gene is, is there, this whole gene is different.
1: Is it a bit like you used a recipe analogy Kat so you're making a cake and it says you've got to have the flour and the eggs and the margarine and the raisins and so on and rather than getting your raisins from that shop you've gone and got a different sort of Type of raisin. They're still raisins, but they're slightly different raisins, and therefore the recipe you cook up will make a slightly different cake, but it's effectively still a fruit sponge.
3: Yeah, I mean, or it could be raisins versus sultanas or oranges versus lemons. And actually, just in our own genes, we have a lot of variations. We make, you know, if you think about it in terms of recipes, we make several hundred thousand different recipes called proteins that make our cells function, keep us functioning healthily. But we only have about 20 to 25,000 genes. So there's a lot of kind of switching in and switching out anyway. And these tiny, tiny variations scattered between them make us all unique and different. Thank you, Kat. So Matt, here's a question for you from Alan, who has asked it's not being explained to me why Venus has still got an atmosphere. Mars has lost its atmosphere. It has no magnetosphere. uh, So you could explain that for a start. But Venus is the same. So therefore, it must be restored each time its atmosphere is lost. Let's start with how does a magnetosphere, a magnetic field around a planet, relate to its atmosphere? And then What's going on with Venus and Mars?
4: So a magnetosphere is incredibly important. The Earth has one. It has one because we have a molten core that rotates. It generates a magnetic field, a dynamo. And this magnetic field deflects particles that are coming to us from the sun. These highly charged energetic particles. Now, if we didn't have a magnetosphere, the, the interaction would start to remove ions from the ionosphere. So our atmosphere would get leaky. Now, Mars doesn't have a magnetosphere. It used to probably around about 4 billion years ago. We're not entirely clear why it it went away. Now, it's not just because it lost its magnetosphere and then everything just, woo, off it went up into space. (laughs) That's the noise it makes, actually, yeah. Um, But actually, Mars is much smaller than the Earth and it has a gravitational field of roughly around 36% Earths. So holding on to stuff is actually very, very difficult. if you go to Venus... I would have to correct one of the things that was said. You, right, it doesn't have a magnetosphere, but it has got something has a, an induced magnetosphere because the magnetic field from the sun wraps around it, so it has it has some protection. Is that because it's
3: so close to the sun? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so it's so. sort of hogging a bit of magnetic field
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. from Yeah, these the sun. magnetic
4: fields are slamming into Venus and wrapping around, so you end up with a sort of quasi-magnetosphere. Like so a magnetic cuddle. A big magnetic <laughs> cuddle. That is the cutest thing I've ever <laughs> heard in terms of planetary astrophysics. And it's astrophysics.
3: holding some gas yeah, onto holding, it like an atmosphere. That's cute. Aww,
4: <laughs> I'm seeing a brand of toys emerging here. Um, and, and Venus is very similar to Earth. It's essentially our twin planet. So it's heavy, and that means it holds onto its gas. So... That's why it has more of an atmosphere.
3: Because of the magnetic cuddle. Because Thank of the magnetic you. cuddle. Thank you very much. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney.
1: And with me, Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch to ask a question, for instance, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com.
3: This week, we have a fabulous panel of pundits for you, including Matt Middleton. He's an astronomer from Cambridge University, Giles Yeo, who's an expert in human metabolism, and Eleanor Drinkwater, who is an animal behavioral specialist.
1: Mark has been in touch, and this is his question. Hello, Mark. Go, go for it. Right. I have read that fructose in, is, in humans is metabolized to fat and little else. Fructose is readily available in most forms of fruit, a form of packaging that arrives in the glut in the autumn. So herbivores and omnivores then have a food source that arrives in huge quantities, encourages overeating and is metabolized straight to fat just prior to the winter when food is scarce and fat reserves are needed. Could this be the source of maladaptation to modern sweet foods? Are we forever stuck preparing for a time of scarcity that never arrives and shaped by a metabolic pathway that no longer fulfills its intended purpose and instead makes us obese?
2: Uh, if i If I may mark it is not true that fructose is converted to fat and little and little else, undoubtedly, glucose, which is our normal which is our normal fuel that increases insulin and, and, and everything else that is absorbed by your muscles and by your fat and that 's not true for fructose; it goes largely to the liver where it 's actually metabolized there about only about 1% or so, maybe slightly less, goes directly to fat. What Most, happens to the other 99% It's actually divided between um, glycogen and actually being converted into glucose in, uh, in in of itself. There is, however, variation in how people handle fructose. Okay, so some people handle fructose slightly better than others. But at the end of the day... All things will be converted into fat if you have too much of it. So in other words, even if you have too much glucose, once your body uses up the glucose it needs to use, it will be converted into fat. The same thing for protein, the same thing for fructose as well.
1: So does Mark have a point that you have this big glut of fructose at one time in the year and it does end up as as fat because effectively animals are taking more energy than they need, so it
2: favours becoming obese? But it's not only fructose. I mean, fructose is found largely in fruit, but together with glucose to form sucrose it's sugar in of itself too much of it when you have it will be converted into fat that is the purpose of having that glut where the bears come along and having uh, you know the fruit in order to actually get enough energy to hibernate but that's going to be always going to be true if you have too many calories in which sucrose is readily available Elena.
0: just quickly from an animal animally tasty thing i was reading quite recently about taste perception and you know why essentially why is sweet things tasty and um from looking at birds, it seems to be that it evolved to teach them, oh, this has lots of calories, therefore it's worth eating, therefore it's sweet. So that's the kind of evolutionary thing. Is it the same in people, do you think? Or do you think it's a bit more kind of complex than that?
2: No, no, I think it probably is quite that simple. So sugar is one of the most energy dense things we can have per gram, because you get 100% of the calories from it, and you eat it. And Interestingly, if you actually take babies, they can take food that is sweet, that is incredibly sweet that we would find inedible, and mm. and but but babies would go mm, delicious, yummy. And then what happens is as they get out of um, of babyhood into childhood, then into our age when our palate becomes adult like, we can't take food that is as sweet then as our our kids can. And if you actually taste anything the kids eat, oh my god! And so I I think it's quite that simple. Yes, wasn't it? You who said once, "Cat,
1: I love babies, but I couldn't eat a whole one.
3: Yeah, yeah I, th- I think they're sweet, but too, too sweet for me. Um, yeah.
1: now, now, Eleanor, we've got this question for you. You're not off the hook yet. To fish's fart. For some strange reason, this thought came to mind while I was in my bath. As a physician, I know that human flatulence comes from two sources. Swallowed air, or gases produced during digestion. Since fish can't swallow air, perhaps their digestion also produces gases? That was John, by the way who was in his bath when he conceived that question.
0: <laughs> I think this is a fantastic question. I absolutely love this question. And I can say categorically that some fish do fart. In fact, a recent study discovered for the first time that herring fish produce farts, fart noises, which they think they use for communication. How? Uh, ha- ha- herrings... <laughs> Talk to each other by farting at them. Apparently. They discovered that if they put more more and more fish into a tank together, the increase in fart noises would increase disproportionately to the number of fish. When
1: you say fart noises, do do you literally mean as in farting noises?
0: Well, yes. It's a small jet of air which comes out of the anus.
1: Where do they get the air from? Because as as is pointed out in the question, fish don't breathe air. And when we swallow air, some of it emerges at the back end and the bugs in our gut metabolise some of it to uh, gas. So where do the fish get theirs?
0: Different fish are kind of put together differently. In the case of herring fish, they have their swim bladder, which is a little sack of air that helps them like kind of buoyancy around the place under the sea, is attached to their gut and they can actually gulp air in from the surface. And they do produce a little bit of gases themselves, which then go from there into the swim bladder. If the swim bladder gets too full or they want to change depth, they can then spit some of the water back out. So yeah, that's where the herring get their get their farts from.
1: So oh. it is it is true then. <laughs>
3: I just think that's amazing. I've I've just been home to see my parents and I think the dog was trying to tell me something. (laughs) (laughs) Moving to a slightly related question, but in the human realm, um, we have a question here for you, Chris, from Kitty Matze, who's written in for some medical help.
0: Please help. Uh, I'm forever constipated. I exercise at least three times a week. I drink lots and lots of water. I eat old bran almost every morning. I don't eat white bread. The feeling of Wanting to do number two never comes naturally. Why and what can I do to help it?
1: It sounds uncomfortable, doesn't it? Well, look, this is actually a pretty common, so I thought we could have a little quiz, um, because actually you might think that this is something that only everyone else suffers from, but in fact many people do get constipated, and I thought we could have a sort of science fact or science fiction around constipation, or in this case, I suppose we're talking whether it's dogma or muck. I'm going to read you some statements, <laughs> and you have to tell me whether you think it's true or false. Everyone's okay. involved. No no one's off the hook. Right, so here we go. First one. The majority of healthy people have a bowel movement every day. Is that science fact or science fiction Do you all? Think. Fiction. Fact? Matt says oh, fiction. I, I think. Charles f- goes every fact. day. and on uh, average. <laughs> um, actually, it's false. Oh. Um, only about 50% of the normal population poo daily. How often, how often are you going then, do you think, Matt? Well,
4: I've just come back from a stag do, so several times. <laughs> <an hour laughs> times. <at the>
1: <laughs> okay, question two Toxins accumulate in the intestine when bowel movements are infrequent. Is this true, fact or fiction?
3: Um, well, I think we're coming back to the hangover poo here as well, but I, I would, it is a really good way of getting like, nasty stuff out, so I would say yes.
1: Speak for yourself, Cat. Eleanor, what uh, do, what I'd you say in?
0: fiction. Mm. Charles? I, fiction. I
1: would say Nutrition. fiction. I think your liver probably does yeah. most of the toxin. Really. Yeah, it's, it's a fiction. Uh, there's no evidence that toxins accumulate when bowel movements are infrequent or, const- or that constipation actually leads get, to, I'm to disease. This, I really am. <laughs> okay, chronic constipation affects about half the population. Fact or fiction? If half the population don't
2: poo once again, I'm going to say fact.
4: Okay.
3: Oh, well, I seem to be getting all of these wrong, so I'm going to go with Giles.
2: Fact.
1: Uh,
3: Matt?
2: I... Fiction. Matt, Matt, Matt's pretty emphatic about that.
1: Yeah, uh,
3: I'm going to go for fiction as well. Yeah,
1: it's false. Um, about, um, it is actually very common, though, being constipated. About one person in five is a sufferer. So that's of that's 20 Regular constipation. All 20%. Right. Yeah, right. Exercise fluids and the right foods prevent constipation. There you go. But is that, that but that's
3: what she says. Our listener says that she's exercising and she's eating. Well, that's the bland. question I'm asking
1: you. Yeah. Is is that true, or is it a fiction?
3: Oh, well, clearly it's not
0: working for her. Yeah, can there be some kind of genetic predisposition or something? Maybe.
1: Well, the answer is actually false. Because Mm. those things do contribute, but actually psychology plays a very big role. Also medical conditions, Parkinson's disease. Classically, people who have Parkinson's often get problems. And also people with an underactive thyroid often get problems in that department. And people who use drugs such as codeine, so painkillers, they are very, very Mm. constipating. So how do you sort this out? Your bowel has as many nerve cells in it as your brain. In some people's cases, it has more nerves than your brain. So actually it can learn. And when people talk about a bowel habit, uh, this actually is very true. Your bowel learns your pattern of eating and it learns when you tend to need to make space and ingest stuff, throw stuff down the toilet. So get into a habit is the advice. Um, Go to the toilet regularly at the same time. But anything between once a day and about once a week is actually known to be compatible with good health and most people think themselves into a state of of worry when in fact they don't need to worry so you're all right you're okay
4: (laughs) now it says here sorry matt i I would point out that if you are really struggling strong german lager is also (laughs) this is evidence-based approach um
1: the other thing they say is don't uh, don't ignore the urge to go because there are people and they're dubbed anally retentive for a good reason which is they're busy doing something else and they think I won't go I could go but I won't go I'm busy with this and that's really bad because what it does is it detunes your response of your gut which it senses stretch and it knows when you need to go and if you blunt that reflex you're more likely then to store up trouble for yourself quite literally also reduce stress because psychological distress actually can manifest in a range of ways either going too often or not going enough drinking plenty of fluids does make a difference because if you are really really dehydrated it can make things harder and harder to go also increasing dietary fibre is a good idea because that does have a pro-motility effect in some people and don't abuse laxatives because there are some people who think they've got something wrong so they start taking lots of laxatives and the laxatives make them go but then they become laxative dependent and um it's a good idea not to do that but to resort to other things the thing that to bottom line here excuse the pun is that <laughs> is that it's not so much how often you go that's the problem is if something changes and what doctors like me are interested in um not not at parties but if, if, <laughs> if you come to seek my advice professionally is we're asking you not how often do you go, but have you noticed any change? Because what's normal for you, are all different. Everyone has their own sort of bowel habit, but it's when it changes all of a sudden. Having previously been established, that's when we worry. So if if being a little bit constipated is normal for you, consider some of these simple things that might help to improve matters, but don't panic unless something has suddenly changed.
3: So Naked Scientist getting to the bottom of all the important issues. So um, Rob has tweeted at Naked Scientist saying... How efficiently do we use the calories and nutrients in the foods we eat? Are all foods equal in what we get out of them? Giles, this is one for you.
2: It's a very good question. Is, in essence, is every calorie a calorie? And from a, physic, from a physics point of view, clearly a calorie is a unit of energy. So every calorie is a calorie. How- Can we well, like, just unpack what mm. is a calorie? Calorie is the amount of energy you need to raise one litre of water by one degree. Yep. That's correct. I'm, I'm yep. getting the, thumb, the, th- the thumbs up there. So it's literally is
3: how much energy is in yeah. this particular amount of that's food. Right. So that that's calories. So a calorie is, is a calorie is a calorie? A, or calorie not a calorie is a
2: calorie once you actually get access to it. It's all about uh. caloric availability. Let me give you the, the, the example. 100 calories of sugar, which we're talking about. If you ate that, you would get 100 calories out of it because it's our base fuel. 100 calories of sweet corn. Now, anyone who's ever eaten sweet corn and given the topic of a conversation <laughs> had a peak had a peak down the next day you can see that you do not digest 100 calories of sweet corn if you take that sweet corn however and actually dry it up and pound it and make it into um like a cornbread then you get a lot more accessibility so how you actually treat the calories um the type of calorie and, and in what form it is gives you different caloric availability and therefore people think different calories differ, which they do from that perspective.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Katani. This week, we're answering your science questions. So if you have a question you would like us to answer for you, send them in and we'll put them in the bag for next time. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com.
3: Now, Matt, here's a question for you. Sandy has been casting her eyes to the skies and can't explain what she saw. So listen to this. Is it
0: possible to have two suns in the sky? My husband and I were in Norfolk, Vancouver area, and we both saw two sons. We asked if anyone else saw it, but no one did. We both know what we saw, but still
3: don't know how to explain it. What could be the explanation? Aliens. Okay, right. That's Next question, moving
4: on. Um, When's my question on poo coming up? Right, <laughs> Sandy, you're not mad. The scientific name for what you saw is Pahelia. But they're commonly referred to as sun dogs. And the earliest reference I can find to this uh, was from Aristotle, who died in 322 BC. So these have been documented for a very long time. I don't know why nobody else saw it. Perhaps they weren't looking in, at the right the right place in the sky. The reason that they you see these things... It's refraction of light. We're all familiar with refraction of light. We've all seen rainbows. We probably, as a child, had a prism or something like. Or maybe cooler toys. Maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe my parents. Cooler me kids something had cooler weak.
3: toys than just prisms. But essentially,
4: uh, it's refraction of light. So light bends as it enters a medium of a different density. What happens is, uh, if it's very very cold, you get crystals forming in the atmosphere, and they act as these prisms. So they bend the light rays as they pass them. So as these crystals float downwards and the horizontal faces become more edge on, you see the light refract horizontally. So you see them to the left and the right of the sun. And those are sun dogs. Helena?
0: How often does this happen? How how have we been missing this?
4: Well, I I don't think they've been missed. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But you do have to have a certain combination of weather to to actually get those. So again, it has to be quite cold. So you, you will see them quite often in winter. It probably also helps that the... The sun is quite low on the horizon as well so you you do see them but just we just don't see them all that often but the other thing to remember is that you're refracting light around so those two mini suns won't be as bright as the as the main the main boy so you know they are a little bit fainter
1: it's reassuring now, Elena, <laughs> andrew has sent this in for us
2: there are a lot of black bears where i live i was wondering do bears feel hibernation coming on slowly like we feel when we get sleepy at night Or do they make a conscious decision and once in a suitable den, just switch it on?
0: Well... First of all, there hasn't been done a huge amount of studies on bears, unfortunately, on um, hibernation because of the difficulty of bothering a bear when it's trying to sleep. But there has been this great study being done on brown bears and they found that, first of all, bears tend to just slow down a bit in autumn until it hits a specific time before the denning period in which they go into kind of almost kind of beginning to shut down so they tend to move around really slowly. And they found that 50% of bears would start doing this While they were still quite a long way away from their den, and the other 50% would kind of wait until they were close to the den to start doing this. It's difficult to tell because we obviously can't ask a bear, are you feeling sleepy? Um, But this kind of wind down suggests that, you know, they're kind of going into this sleepy phase. Also, the other interesting thing, too, is that um, apparently during this period, this is when brown bears are most dangerous. There's the greatest number of unfortunate (laughs) encounters between... Brown bears and hikers, because they reckon it could be that the bears are kind of sleepy, and they can't run away as well, so they tend to get a little bit more aggressive.
2: Charles and our animal model, which is being studied, is a Siberian hamster. And what happened there is that you get a fluffy white Siberian hamster during the winter, and then they become lean and mean and, and thin during, during <laughs> a the <mean> summer <laughs> Absolutely, why are they mean? <laughs> so to, to go after the acorn. But, but, but the critical thing, the, the critical thing is. The scientists can induce changes in these animals just by changing the time of light. So if you go from eight hours um, light to, to 16 hours uh, dark, you will then have a winter winter hamster. And if you actually switch it around, you end up with a summer hamster. And so you're actually <laughs> able to to, to to change this. I don't know if this is true so for the, bears. Yeah, the light day length mm. is the trigger
1: for That's initiating right. whatever the pathway kicks in to say mm. you need to be thinking about going to bed now. Correct.
0: That's so cool. With bears, they kind of found that they correlated with um, the amount of food present and what the temperature was but um I, I don't know whether if you put bears in a in a box and change their light patterns i know i know i know with lizards well, they'd they they be delighted they? <laughs> i know exactly. so they
1: wouldn't mind at all
0: you know.
1: <laughs> if anyone's daring enough to try the experiment, do send in your findings <laughs> to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Okay, Kat, it's your turn. We've heard from Ned and he wants to know, is there a link between diet and cancer? And specifically, he asks about vegan diets and allegedly lower rates of cancer in that group. Is that true?
3: So this is a really, really complicated question because unlike a behaviour like smoking or even drinking alcohol, everyone has... A different diet. Everyone eats different amounts of food, all sorts of different types of food. It's different in, in different parts of the world. And as we heard earlier from Giles, like different people have different genetics and respond differently to the food that they eat. So it's really really hard to unpick all of this. Now, there are a couple of massive studies that are going on. There's a a huge study called EPIC, which is the European Prospective Investigation of Diet and Cancer. Um, I know that Cancer Research UK is helping to fund a big part of that. And there's sites in Oxford and in Norfolk where they're looking at thousands of people. And in total, I think it's half a million people in Europe where they're saying, okay, what do you eat? How do you live? How does this affect your risk of cancer and of other diseases as well? They're looking at things like diabetes and heart disease. Now, there are a few broad brush things that Epic has pulled out uh, in terms of diet. So in, in terms of specific types of foods... It has shown that the more red meat and particularly the more processed meat you have in your diet, the higher your risk of certain types of cancer and particularly bowel cancer is one of them. If you eat more fish, you have a lower risk of bowel cancer. Um, If you eat more veg, more fibre in your diet, broadly that reduces your risk of certain types of cancer, particularly bowel cancer. Um, And also there's a big part of just your overall body weight. So we know that the more obese you are, that does increase your risk of cancer too. Um, The exact components of the diet and whether being specifically a vegetarian or a vegan is a lot more hard to unpick, particularly because in the studies there aren't that many vegetarians and vegans. Um, So one of the things we do know is that there seems to be a link between a particular growth factor, something called IGF or insulin-like growth factors, and your risk of cancer. That may be linked to animal products, may be linked to dairy. There's a lot of work trying to go on and unpick this. But you hear a lot of stuff about, oh, there are places in the world where they're completely vegan and they have no cancers at all. That's probably not true. Um, The link between diet and cancer is very complex. But broadly, the main things we can say is the more fruit and veg you eat, the more fiber you eat, the less red and processed meat you eat. Uh, Fish is good. Less alcohol is better. Those will broadly help to reduce your risk of cancer as well as keeping physically active and trying to keep a healthy body weight. What
1: about smoked fish? I Oh, yeah. So, I,
3: couldn't,
1: I couldn't not have that.
3: So there's a couple of interesting things about, uh, I think smoking. comes under Because, you know, someone did process. write to me and
1: they said, Chris, I don't understand. Why is smoking bad for you if it cures salmon?
3: <laughs> the cure for salmon. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly that comes under uh, processing. We do know that, for example, particularly in Japan, uh, where they have a lot of very salty foods and a lot of pickles, that was uh, or certainly does seem to be associated with an increased risk of stomach cancers. And also, uh, stomach cancer is really interesting because the rates of that, particularly in the West, have gone down massively because a lot of that is linked to gone-off food and the sort of nasty chemicals produced when your food goes off. And as everyone has a fridge now, you're much less exposed to those kind of nasties, and that's helped to reduce the risk, particularly of stomach cancer. Napoleon
1: had stomach cancer.
3: Wow, fascinating fact. I did not know that. But now it's my turn to grill you. So we've had a question from Zina, who asks... What research is available regarding varicose veins? Why do they happen and can you prevent it?
1: Right, well, what is a varicose vein? This is common, about half of men and half of women. Are destined to get varicose veins. The evidence is women will get them slightly younger than men. They are bulges or dilatations in the veins, often seen in the legs. And the reason for this is that the pressure is greatest in the veins in your longest part of your body, in your dependent tissues. So if you imagine yourself standing up, you've got all of the mass of the blood in that column of blood vessel, which goes from your big toe right the way back up to your heart, pushing down on your veins. Veins aid the return of blood to the heart because they have valves in them and those valves allow one way flow and every time you contract a muscle you squeeze the vein and this applies a pressure to the blood and it pushes blood through the valve and it moves it back up to the heart. Now eventually some of those valves fail a bit and so instead of there being a short segment of water pressure pushing down on each segment of the vein you can end up with a long column of water pushing all the way down on one bit at the bottom of the vein and so the pressure on the wall of that vein can become quite high and it leads to that segment of the vein beginning to stretch or dilate and becoming tortuous and you often see this happening on the lower limb because that's where the pressure's highest we know that they tend to be more common in people who gain weight. We know that pregnancy is a risk factor, probably because you gain a bit of weight, but you also have more pressure on your venous system. We also know that family history seems to play a role. If you have a family history of people getting varicose veins, especially at a younger age, you are more likely to succumb to them yourself, but that's not a given. How can we treat them? Well, you can stop them happening in the first place up to a point if you minimise your risk factors. You can minimise your body mass index, which is a big risk. Um, Sorry, Kat.
3: Does putting your feet up a lot help?
1: It doesn't really seem to, no. Yeah. There's not really any evidence that being lazy does help. Probably because you gain on. weight. Yeah. And, and so one, one thing begets the other. The other thing you can do, though, is have surgery and um, what you do is a a strip of the vein, and it looks pretty nasty, and it is pretty nasty. What you do, and I've done this operation, you take someone, hopefully anaesthetised and asleep, it would be very painful if you didn't have them asleep, you thread a cannula up from the bottom of the vein, right up to where it joins the vein at the top of the leg, and it's got a big bulge on the end of this cannula, this big thing, it looks a bit like a mini torpedo. And uh, once it's come out of the end of the vein, you then yank back and strip out the whole of the vein all the way back along its course uh, and and rip it all out and you you rely on the blood then finding other roots back up inside the body and that's called a, a stripping and also the little ones, the little perforators you do a multiple sort of stab you stab through the skin and, and whip them out and they just thrombos off uh so that's how you stop them if if they are a big problem you don't have to resort to surgery what some people sometimes do is wear those stockings those what are called ted or throm- thromboembolic deterrent stockings which are elastic stockings and they apply pressure across the wall of the vein stopping the vein stretching and dilating but unfortunately not everything improves with age and your risk of varicose veins is one of them sorry cat oh
3: sad isn't it um anyway moving to Slightly more cheerful, perhaps less cheerful uh, topic. Here's one for you, Giles. Stephanie says, I have a question about intolerance to dairy and alcohol. She's read that the gene for digesting dairy products is on chromosome 2, whilst the gene for metabolising alcohol is on chromosome 12. If these aren't linked, so they're not genetically linked, they're not on the same chromosome, why do both of these intolerances often tend to occur simultaneously? And how do you diagnose an intolerance?
2: Ah, they're not linked genetically, and their apparent linkage in the world in various you know ethnicities is entirely coincidental. And it actually has to do with the history of agriculture within that particular region. So milk, most of the world cannot handle milk. People, people don't know this. Um, so most people are actually lactose intolerant or are unable to handle lactose once they become adults. The reason why uh, the ability to lactose has evolved is because three different populations in particular, Northern Europeans and two different African tribes, figured out that if you don't kill the cow or the camel or the goat immediately and eat the meat, but drink the milk, you actually get a lot more calories out of them. That's the first thing. The second thing is milk provides a very safe drinking source. And so for people who are able to take advantage of this, they thrived. You might ask why a lot of the world are not able to handle milk i'm chinese so i'll use the chinese example and the reason why is because they had their own other sources of calories and the chinese for example were the first people to domesticate chickens and so then chickens came with eggs and they were able to to do that and the chinese were the first to domesticate pigs and we don't drink pig milk egg so 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 (laughs) therefore 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 they 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 do that i thought you were going to say they were the first to come up with crispy duck as well (laughs) that is also fantastic poultry all all in general (laughs) In terms of of alcohol, alcohol... Um, once again, post-agriculture, and people were able to, to drink it, and people have always drunk it for cultural reasons. The reason why some cultures are able to handle it more than others, however, has to do with safe drinking water. So the Northern Europeans and the people in the Fertile Crescent, so the Middle East, uh, chose to purify their water by adding alcohol, and so that it was then became safe for the drink. Good choice. <laughs> mm. And so they had to be able to metabolize it well enough to drink it, otherwise they would die. The Chinese amongst other other, other groups, uh, chose to boil it and then uh, the water and end up sticking some twigs in it and called it tea. And so they, although they did drink alcohol, their survival did not rely on alcohol.
3: So those genetic variations for lactose tolerance and alcohol tolerance have just become selected in the populations that have loads of dairy and loads of booze.
1: Correct. A slightly more macabre question here from Michelle, Eleanor, who wants to know, I would like to know where birds go to die. The only dead birds I've seen are from roadkill, a cat or a dog's kill, or a baby bird that's fallen out of the nest.
0: There isn't a place where birds go to die. There isn't like a bird graveyard somewhere. But birds tend to get carried off after they die quite quickly there was an experiment done in which they put 275 baby chickens baby chicken chicks who had been killed they, they left 275 of these out in the field and then they came back the next day to check on them 24 hours later they could only find two baby chicks left and the rest of them had been carried off by various scavengers birds um you know cats dogs whatever other animals happened to be in the area so It could just be that we have an amazing ecosystem with so many awesome scavengers that just take them off to a better place uh, quite quickly.
1: It's a nice thought, isn't I it? Know. it? Takes them off to a better place, <laughs> like their stomach.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: I <laughs> think one of the most incredible bits of bird behaviour I ever saw. I, I live pretty close to the centre of London, and I saw a sparrowhawk bringing down a sparrow in my back oh garden, goodness, that was and they pluck it in this beautiful circle mm. of feathers, and then eat it, and then it, it was just gone. But all that was left was this perfect circle of feathers.
1: No. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith.
3: And with me, Kat Arney. It's our Q&A show today, so if you'd like us to answer your science questions, anything from why bees buzz to why stones sink but wood floats, then ping us an email. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll do our best to answer them next time around.
1: Now, we've got this question for you, Matt. Uh, We heard from Vishal, who sent this in.
0: If I was falling into a black hole and if I were to survive for long enough... Would I be able to see the end of the universe approaching, however that may look?
4: This is a great question again. Um, So there's this this very, very well-proven theory that if you are closer to a gravitational body, time would, for you, appear to be, from an outside observer, would appear to slow down. And we know this because if you put an atomic clock in orbit, it actually runs faster. So because it's further away from the gravitational potential, it's called, oh, well, it's an effect of gravitational time dilation. It's really stunning. So in fact, if you're orbiting on the ISS, time is running actually a bit faster.
3: Does it go, do you get that time back when you come back down to Earth?
4: Well, time is all relative. So if you, for you, time is just your time okay you it doesn't feel any different for you but essentially you only have those seconds to live right so so you know i, I don't scare you cat i have <laughs> you only have to live. seconds to okay live. Yeah. yeah she has got nine lives oh, <laughs> oh <that's> so <laughs> razor sharp so this is a great idea then that if you were falling towards a black hole which is a very very deep gravitational potential well if we were watching them we'd see them slow down slow down slow. Down. if we had a clock the clock would get slower and slower and slower until it went to the event horizon and then it would fade out of our ability to see it because at the event horizon which is the point where not even light can escape from the gravitational well that's it that's the cutoff for being able to see it obviously because light can't escape so this idea then would be that i'm near a black hole and time everything else seems to be going faster and faster and faster maybe i can see the end of the universe great idea the thing is you have to basically prevent yourself from crossing the event horizon because once you do that you're on a one-way trip to the singularity to be compressed down to something unpleasant. So you have to be able to hold yourself at the event horizon or just above the event horizon. And then in principle, yeah, you could you could see the universe speeding up and, and whatever that looked look like. What it would actually look like would be a complete, you know, blow your mind probably.
1: And the bigger the black hole is, the faster that, the, the more dramatic that time dilation Absolutely. That it will
4: be. Absolutely, yeah.
1: Well, look, Alex has asked the following. I currently work in the public sector, but learned later in life that my real passion is in the sciences I'm considering re-entering university to pursue a science degree. In all of the science podcasts and media I consume, I don't hear much about people entering sciences as a second career. Is this a realistic goal? If so, would you have any recommendations?
3: This is a fantastic question. I'm really like, yeah, go Alex, do science. Um, Unfortunately, Alex hasn't really specified what kind of science. I know we've got kind of five scientists in the room here. We've got a medical doctor. I'm a geneticist. We've got an animal behaviorist, an astrophysicist and someone studying metabolism and, and human diseases and disorders. So like there's a lot of science in the world. So it kind of depends on, I think, what particular type of science. But there are, you know, I guess it's never too late. There's nothing to stop you. Giles, what, what do you think?
2: Um, I'm a fellow at Wolfson College here, here in Cambridge and is a mature student's college. So although we have a lot of graduate students and those are people coming in and doing PhDs, we also have a contingent of undergraduate students that are older. All of them have come in from second careers, not all to do science, perhaps, but to do medicine, to do archaeology, and any number of other degrees that you just decided that you had a change in mind to do. And I would say probably twenty percent of them are coming in to do science, and these are people who were lawyers before, who were, you know, any other you know types of careers. So definitely not impossible. There are colleges, even in Cambridgeshire, here, which specialize um, um, that. Try and develop you for your second career,
4: including the science.
3: What do you reckon, Matt? I mean, if if someone for example, particularly I always feel to go into physics, you've got to have really good maths.
4: You absolutely do, Kat. You're right. I mean, yes, Alex, go for it. You know, absolutely. Follow your heart, your dreams and whatever. Lots of good platitudes. Um <laughs> But Absolutely. Don't don't give up on that. But it is it is tricky. I mean, you, you shouldn't for one second second think that this is something that anybody, you know, I'm just drop of a hat. I'm no longer going to be a lawyer. I'm no longer going to be an accountant. So I'm going to be something else entirely. You do have to. It's good to have some transferable skills like maths, certainly for physics. And the other thing to keep in mind is that if you do want to follow an academic track, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you want to get to the end and have tenure or a lectureship or something like that, they do actually care a little bit about your age. Some places want younger departments moving forward that they can then mould. So if you're going to be a lecturer for sort of five years before you you retire, that isn't always seen in the great light. But that, shouldn't, that should not stop you at all.
3: I also think it's important just that we have more people who are literate in science broadly. I mean, really
0: briefly, Eleanor, what, what would be your advice? I'd say go for it. I think it's super exciting. I'd say if you're still wondering which kind of science you want, then try it out. There's lots of places that do internships or experiences that you'd be able to get in touch with people. And there's always the open university as well.
1: Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to our wonderful guests, including Matt Middleton, Giorgio and Eleanor Drinkwater and Greer Jackson for production. Next time, 100 years have gone by since cocaine was made illegal. The naked scientists are going to be getting high on the science of drugs. And just in case you're terminally disappointed that you didn't hear what a farting fish sounds like, we've got the sound just for you. And on that note, The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye!